0: I'm Matt Jolly, and this is History Worth Saving, coming to you from the Red Barn at Fair Chance Farm in Georgia, where great American stories grow strong. Welcome to the third season. Please, if you would, sign up for the newsletter at historyworthsaving.com. I'd love to stay in touch. And remember, if you like the show, tell your friends. If you don't, (laughs) well, bless your heart. Thanks for listening. Now, here's the show. On this episode of the History Worth Saving podcast, we're exploring some of the greatest American mysteries of all time. The Bermuda Triangle, Flight 19, Amelia Earhart's disappearance, even Bigfoot. And we're doing it with a man who I respect and find incredibly fascinating. He takes these mysteries, these unknowns, and he researches them to the nth degree and then explains it all very logically in a fashion that each and every one of us can understand. I'm talking about the author Ian Quasar, and he joins us now from out on the West Coast to explain away on some of these great American mysteries. Ian, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I first came across you with your book, Into the Bermuda Triangle, and the connection not far from here, the Okefenokee Swamp, is mentioned in several of your books specifically they flew into oblivion talking about the disappearance of flight 19 so many mysteries how do you start to research a project like this yourself because you're so you're you're so detail oriented i can't imagine i mean there's so many things that have gone awry in the bermuda triangle where do you start
1: i got a negative review once because i was too detailed <laughs>
0: you know, in this kind of work, that, that ought to be, like, on your mantle, I would assume.
1: I, I hope so, yeah, because it's, it's uh, these are all treated like Saturday afternoon pulp, and I think that's basically why I was motivated to look further into all of them, because, you know, f- they're these world-famous mysteries, but they're never really investigated, they're just regurgitated. And so that's really what motivated me, I'd like to... Uh, I like to look into mystery, but with a chance of solving it, not just, you know, repeating it and wallowing in it and getting my own chill and thrill, but actually trying to crack it.
0: And I, think and I would say that's successful. what
1: motivated me.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and, and you start the research out, I mean, by event, or, or how does that walk me through your, your mindset on something like this?
1: Well, when I, I first started with the triangle, it would be the events, all the missing uh, ships and planes. And uh, so I as a young man started reading the books, you know, 1990, and so the, uh, the oldest book, the most recent book, I should say, at that time was probably 13 years old, and the authors disagreed if it was true or not, and uh, so I thought if it was, the phenomenon would still be going on, so I actually went to the National Transportation Safety Board and got data readouts for missing aircraft, went to the Coast Guard about boats, And massive amount of disappearances in the 1980s when no books were written, no documentaries, nothing like that. And so I realized the phenomenon was still going on. And I just, that's how I approach, you know, all these topics, not just to document mystery, but to do so in steps leading toward a solution or helping to lead toward a solution. I would have to say that would be so the event would, you know, uh, inspire me. So in the triangle, you have something like Flight 19, five avengers that vanish obviously that's one of the most significant aviation mysteries in history regardless if it was in the triangle or not so i looked into that in detail and got all these pictures talked to anybody who was alive still and that is what inspired uh they flew into oblivion and i was you know able to uncover some botch-ups in the search and a lot of evidence pointing to five avengers going down in a federal refuge in southern georgia i think that's why that remains a very popular book because of all the evidence and then of course the controversy that they went down on land and not at sea and it wasn't in the triangle anymore
0: well and, and uh, if i recall and i don't want to give the book away but one of the most fascinating things that i that i love that you consider factual i assume i maybe i just put words in your mouth but you're not afraid of of the great beyond and the spiritual aspect of some of this. If I, if I recall, there was a dream that was had by one of the widows that I believe is mentioned in your book. Is it, is it not?
1: Flight 19, well, only one was married, so uh, she had some kind of premonition, yeah, and she was trying to call the base. Well, it's all, you know, I'm going to have to consider all evidence, all clues. So if someone has a dream, a premonition, and they're calling the base trying to... Uh, get to their husband and find out that he's on the flight in which he vanishes. That uh, you know, legitimately has to be mentioned. It doesn't really go anywhere in investigation, but you know, it has to be mentioned.
0: That that particular book, they flew into oblivion, which is available, by the way, uh, really wherever books are sold, um, Amazon included. Uh, that to me was was so eloquently explained, and I and I know that it's it it has to just be. Uh, part and parcel from all of your work, the way it's written, I think people will find this really, really surprising when they when they dive into this. Something that I was, I, I didn't even realize that you had on your radar was Bigfoot. Can can you share just a little bit about that? Um, oh, I know you've been casting Bigfoot. Yeah, let's talk about that just a little bit.
1: The the book for which I am vilified. <laughs> <laughs> well, even better I, than <laughs> so I, I'm hated. Well, because I. I didn't dismiss Bigfoot, but I didn't endorse the uh, the popular culture image that came from the Bigfooters, the original Bigfooters, like
0: hmm.
1: you know Renee deHinden and John Green and and all these you know Peter Byrne, all these great old guys that <clears throat> were out there kind of setting the narrative or the Patterson film. But there is overwhelming evidence for a Native American anthropoid, not one from the Old World, as they would say but one that came up from South America and is, uh, you know, many stories down there of an actual anthropoid. Not a well, not a monkey, but the ape. Actually, let's say ape version of a monkey. Mm. And it's always been amazing that, you know, with all the monkey species in South America and Central America, no one officially ever encountered an anthropoid, an ape of the New World, a Platyrinian ape. And uh, But there was a lot of reports going back even to Pedro de Leon about uh, this hairy wild man that lived out uh, in the forest and I've, I followed all these historic references and compared them to the Indian uh, artwork all mm-hmm. along the North uh, Pacific Northwest and they are describing features of South American primates and they are describing other attributes that uh, South American tribes were describing as well and so I followed that through, and uh, that's why the book is called Recasting Bigfoot, that there was, in fact, an anthropoid. And maybe it's still around, but it's very unlikely. It's from the old world.
0: I think one of the great things about uh, about these types of, of mysteries is how it sort of permeates into the Americana uh, culture, if you will. And, and what is real and what is not real is is not as important as the chase. How, how does your work fit into all of that?
1: Well, I like the chase, but sometimes my conclusions are not what, what those devotees to the subject matter like, as in the case of Bigfoot. But the chase, uh, it, it uncovers the truth. I wanted to see if this stuff was really true. I grew up as a kid, you know, in the 70s watching these documentaries, Sunshine Classic, all those. And you know, sit there goggle-eyed and ooh and ah the whole prospect of UFOs and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and all that. But the chase to uncover the kernel of truth, as you put it, it's, it's far more interesting because it does lead you to uh, other revelations, to to true mystery in some cases. In some cases, you know, you have to explode the mystery. And so I find it all very, all very fascinating. It's unfortunate that the topics are somewhat lightly considered. Hopefully my approach is not considered that way. But, you know, many times the... Uh, You know, well, something like Bigfoot or UFOs is going to be very, uh, it's going to be recounted with smirks by newsmen and so forth. But that's not my approach to confirming and reconfirming popular legend, but to looking behind the narrative and seeing what really started all this and where, where does one truly logically follow this, not simply follow all the marketing, what's become popular with each chapter as something new is added. Like with big, you know, UFOs, then, you know, abductions became vogue in the 60s and 70s and all this stuff. And we're wandering down all these side streets and uh, forgetting how we even got there. So I kind of go back to the beginning and retrace and see where it, it, the actual facts lead.
0: I'm I'm curious, and I, I'm i sure you've thought about this several times, but but is there something in our culture that we assume as fact, concretely, uh, oh, yes. that, that that you have... Mused about and, and maybe taken apart and dissected in this manner and discovered something else.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, UFOs.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that just a little bit. The
1: extent that UFOs are actually our own spy craft, our own secret inventions, our own testing of German conventions is remarkable and only buried within all of this there are reports of something that's hard to explain and that would be an oval disc which was reported as 1920s by reliable hmm. authors one got published in 1929 which i quote in some of my work and so this the phenomenon is there of an ovoid flitting through the atmosphere sometimes quite huge But after World War II, when the glut comes upon us, the flaps, Mm. so much is our own testing, so much of the great second flap that started in 1965 that really created the modern image of UFOs, the the light hovering over a rural road and people looking, gaping up through their windshield and, and power outages. Uh, the abduction stuff, all of that, anything that we have today really comes from 1965 to 67, not 1947 to 52, the first great flap. And it is very clear from uh, researching and stuff that's been released kind of under the table that those were our own spy devices, one you can put a name on, it's Lightcraft, and uh, they were used to uh, test our nuclear uh, missile facilities, and that's when you used to hear all these reports in the '60s and '70s of all these UFOs descending. Hmm. And these things put out such electromagnetic energy that they could uh, they could erase the targeting tapes or reset the digital ones. And I must assume that's why they were being used to see if they could be used as a weapon.
0: And then, how do you explain away the uh, the abduction piece of that? Because that seems to be really intrusive on on a variety of matters, Ian.
1: Well, hopefully it's not taking experimentation to a psychological level, but I have some of these, uh, it's hard to explain on my website, actually not in a book, but on my website, I have a couple of really detailed cases on the Betty and Barney Hill case and why it is, it's so hard to figure out. And then, of course, Pascagoula in 1973, and I have hopes. It's not psychological experimenting, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of contradictory stuff With that, And then, of course, the people feel quite privileged eventually and they start trying to capitalize on it and they just uh, muddy the original truth, as in the Betty and Barney Hill case or the Pascagoula abduction, which rate as the two highest ones there are on the list for abductions. They set the the entire vogue.
0: And I guess that's what I was, you know, that falls back to the original question. At what point does something we believe in so concretely, whether it is... This particular instance, or or anything for that matter, become so entrenched uh, without really even uh, investigating it. So that's that's fascinating stuff right there. Big
1: headed, uh, big headed, gray little aliens. That's one of the worst, most most uh, most false images you can imagine. That is that can be traced hmm. to the moment it was born, and it is something so after the fact and so heavily based on science fiction of the 1950s and we take that for fact now the alien motif is everywhere you know the little almond eyes and and all that stuff
0: and where did that come from
1: well I, it's it starts with the betty and barney hill case that's under hypnosis that's what barney said one looked like and it just simply grew more egregious afterward and it's contradictory to what uh, betty's dreams were she said they were air Air Force type uniforms and had big noses like Jimmy Durante. And so, what's, what's being done here between the two? One is hypnosis, the other one is dream recall. It's uh, just with time and the growing popularity of it, the big head grew bigger and rounder, and the eyes grew bigger. And it's heavily based on science fiction like Invasion of the Saucer Men. It's, it's just too, uh, it's too much like that to uh, ignore uh, you, you look at all the early ufo newsletters that were going along and uh like apro and NICAP, none of this description of little aliens is in there this is something purely traceable easily traceable to uh to sci-fi and then the betty and barney hill
0: i'm guessing that fi
1: uh, of course because that was the view of the time sorry. they have to be so much smarter than us so they've got bigger heads because they have to have bigger brains
0: <laughs> right <laughs> and i And I'm assuming you're not a, a frequent guest at some of these sci fi conventions, but
1: i've never been <laughs> i see yes.
0: i think there's i think there's a problem with that i mean you're you're sort of the only adult in the room standing there looking around going, "Well, hey, look, what about this but Ian, talk to me about your career as an American writer as an author because you, you sort of touched on this, you said you know sort of the low looks from the journalist and the squints from one eye and and, and this kind of stuff but What's kept you going on this subject matter?
1: Well, oh, it hasn't been uh, money. I, not, I don't think I've ever really made anything off the books. Uh, it's it's just, too, I like to share. You know, I was really inspired when I was young, so I realized I had the ability to seriously investigate topics that are not investigated at all. and uh, And I've come up with a lot of very... Uh, interesting information, even if it does contradict the popular folklore. And I, I like to share it. I share it on my website, which is growing to 500 pages. I share it in the books, which of course is more detailed. Except for certain certain aspects, you know, something that cannot be done in a book, I will do on my website with a lot of video or pictures. I did that with one crime case and was even uh, invited to share freely with two jurisdictions. That we're investigating, so that I had actually uh, detectives in the district attorney's office, special uh, DNA section for homicide, who would uh, process my persons of interest and get back to me and the lead detective in Sacramento who would process. And you'd hear back when they know you, you'd hear back. If you turn someone into a jurisdiction and they don't know you, you'll never know what comes of it. Mm. But if they you know you, they'll tell you that he's been ruled out for this and that reason, and then you're at ease over it. But the other ones, uh, I've in one circumstance where someone came to me over a totally different case, and I saw how he fit uh, a child abduction and murder case, which I don't look into because I don't like that kind of stuff. But, so I tried to turn the guy into a couple jurisdictions, and it was very difficult just to give a tip. So I kind of stay out of... Uh, yeah, doing stuff like that.
0: True Crime is not going to be uh, the next popular book uh, for you, I guess. Although you have uh, written on Jack the Ripper, if I remember right.
1: I have, yes. Yeah. Jack the Ripper, when you start Cold Case, Jack the Ripper's the first one you have to look into. That would be Scarlet Autumn. But so there's, there's I divide my, you know, journalistic approach to books and to Equestria Files, my website, if it's something that really cannot work in a book where it needs lots of pictures, lots of video, and stuff that people can surf through for free.
0: Well, and we're going to link to your website there, obviously, uh, in this show story, and we'll make that available. But for the folks listening uh, on the podcast, uh, give them your website one time, Ian, if you don't mind, just so they, could, they can follow along here.
1: www.equesterfiles.com
0: and on there, you can find all of this uh, fascinating information that he's talking about, but, but help him out and buy some books. Because, as you can imagine, being the, the American expert on so many of our fascinating mysteries uh, simply uh, does not pay well. <laughs> and I think no, that, it doesn't. You know, I, I think everybody thinks you know, that, that you're just rolling in it. Uh, you've, you've, of course, uh, frequented so many radio shows, and I'm, I'm imagining uh, documentaries and whatnot that we've seen you on, and I think that's when I first came across you was on a, a documentary on the History Channel. How has the dawn of the internet? I mean, now we're really into it uh, with YouTube and all of this stuff. How has that if, shaped what you do?
1: Well, for investigation, uh, it's it's helped with documents and historical documents going online. I'm quite involved right now in trying to dissect the. Kind of like the American Whitechapel murders in San Francisco, there were the gay murders uh, over the 1970s when over 30 guys were murdered in rather bizarre and uh, disgusting circumstances, kind of like Jack the Ripper's victims. And so, going back to uncover who these were and then dissect: is there a serial killer involved here? He's often called the Doodler. People probably don't even know about the case, it's been so buried in the 19 from the 1970s on. But for online research, that's, uh, it's, it never would have seen the light of day if it had not been for a couple of guys about 10 years ago beginning to write about this. And then about six years ago, I began to write about him, but I realized there's another one involved that I call Jack the Knife, and I'm trying to uh, determine now through all these records of guys who were murdered when and where and uh, just see how many serials were involved and it's impossible without the Internet. I have to put little pegs in Google Earth just to find out, you know, keep my head straight where everybody was and where they were killed and where the bars were where someone was last seen. Wow. Because we're talking, again, very much Whitechapel-type of murders in an alley by a bar in a parking lot, strangled, mutilated in Sado, uh, in a deep basement, back at the flat, in a park.
0: Yeah, the kind of places right out of the movie that you don't want to be. Right. On, a, on a dark and stormy night. Let's talk about a lady uh, for just a little bit. Uh, then came the dawn. Then and now, your latest work uh, about none other than Amelia Earhart. What have you learned in this? Because uh, as an aviation guy, um, I find this subject to be one of the ones that seems to every time it comes up, uh, you just you just kind of look at it, like you said, down your nose a little bit, and go, well, I, let's let's see how much this stinks, but. When I saw that you had ventured into this, I thought, now here's a book I've got to read. Uh, talk to me about, about Then Came the Dawn.
1: Well, I drugged my heels over it for 10 years because biography is not my, my thing. And it's not a biography of her. Of course, the first part of the book is about her life and so forth. It, it's just very brief. You know, it's not an in-depth, but it has to be put in perspective or you know, the entire investigation of her disappearance and then and now search is is pointless without knowing a bit about her but i'm surprised the extent that she's negatively mm. covered today you know because they all they those who start criticizing her say well she wasn't the you know the foremost woman pilot in the world and they go from there and they don't seem to realize that yet well you know she was not the best pilot she was a good pilot very good pilot by the time she vanished but no she didn't begin as the best pilot she was the product of a lot of publicity but she developed into a very good pilot but her fame was uh, far beyond piloting skills she was a charismatic charming uh, basically motivational speaker and writer and uh, that's something that I think is fairly forgotten today because people keep trying to uh, judge her base her fame based on piloting skills which was never the standard of her fame, even in her lifetime. So she was more of the center of a personality cult, and she motivated people to follow their dreams, and she was determined to fly around the world. (coughs) And she finally set off to do so, and uh, managed it uh, very well with Fred Noonan as the navigator in back. She wasn't a great navigator. I think ultimately she knew she would have to have a navigator aboard. So she flies around the world, and coming to the uh, most dangerous leg of it, from La New Guinea to Howland Island, that's, as everybody knows, that's when she uh, vanished. And the evidence, you know, yes, she, uh, she was a very haphazard planner. She was very happy-go-lucky, as her first uh, independent biographer, Colonel Breon, put it, she was happy-go-lucky in her preparations. Well, she was a bit haphazard, and so things happened. A number of things outside of her control, I think we can fairly accept that her receiving antenna had blown off on takeoff at Lay, New Guinea. She could not receive anything from the Itasca. She thought that 7.5 megahertz did work on her homing, uh, Antenna, her homing device, uh, when it did not. And so she was, had agreed with the Atasca to receive voice on 3105 kilocycles, and then the homing signals on 7.5 megacycles. And she could not receive on either due to the antenna going down, and then the fact that even though it was stenciled on her, her receiver, she could not receive on that channel. So she was incapable of finding Howland Island. She wasn't getting any response from them because, you know, she couldn't hear them on her receiver. And I think at the end that she did turn off and go back to the Gilbert Islands, which was their their plan. It was spoken only, you know, off and on that she would go back to the Gilberts, and that's, you know, how kind of bad she was at planning. Mm. But I do, I don't believe in the crash and sink. There's nothing to it. Uh, it's just filling in, you know, Looking at an empty ocean and saying, "Well, her her radium, her last radio message was received signal strength five, which is good, very good, but there's more signal strengths above that, and she, uh, uh, you know, she would have gone back to the Gilberts, I think. And so I think there is a chance that some of the legend, from what I've picked up on the evidence I could find back then, which was the most important, that she could make a reef." And uh, could have gotten, could have even drifted to the Marshall Islands where she was picked up perhaps a couple of months later. And they didn't know who she was then in the Marshall Islands by that time. The Japanese did know who she was while she was searching. This idea that a Japanese naval vessel would have Mm -hmm. picked her up right away and taken her to the Marshall Islands and they didn't know who she was or they would have shot her. That's all rubbish. They would have known exactly who she was. They were asked to search. But if she's drifting for a couple of months or on an island and then drifts off and is picked up by a fishing vessel near the Marshall Islands, that's a different thing. Japan was at war with China at that time. The locals in the Marshall Islands would not have really known who she was. She would have been transshipped by the companies, not by the military. And so you get a lot of room for error here. And the earliest... uh, earliest and most reliable reports that Fred Gurner, the CBS journalist could pick up in the 1960s on Saipan was that this a man and woman looked very sick and weather beaten. They looked very <clears throat> as though they'd been going through this for months. Mm. And so it ultimately she could have died on them eventually at Saipan and they didn't know what to do. Here they had someone very famous. They might have recognized her and then she dies which is the report from the people at the hotel that this American woman pilot died in a pool of her own blood in bed. Mm-hmm. So from some kind of typhus, maybe scrub typhus, I don't know. And, uh, or the local police chief was a real vicious guy. He was known to beat people and thought they were spies. And again, this is locals. That's the, that's the thing that people will discover. And then came the dawn is that the legend that the Japanese military and administration was involved has no basis in fact these were uh, islands that were administered by the south seas colonial government which japan set up in karor and everything going on to, in these islands would go through karor to the minister of colonial affairs in tokyo nothing went straight to tokyo from these islands and there was very minimal uh, military liaison at the time they were all over in china they had just invaded china and so if uh, from what we now know of the political circumstances and how those islands were managed, it would have been the powerful South Seas trading companies that were involved, and then locals, so the Saipanese police under uh, Jesus de Leon Guerrero, and now they could have been very ignorant as to who she was.
0: And that seems and to be the, uh, the course of your research there. It, while you were doing that, did you, did you come across anything that was just adamant uh, that this this was, in fact, Amelia Earhart. I mean, because I know on both sides of the research, you, you often find a, a really strong positive. Was it a family member who said, oh, yes, my grandfather had her here in the hotel, or how, however that worked? Did you, did you come across a few of those, or, or even one?
1: I came across the, I compared the earliest ones in the book, that Gurner, and then uh, Joe Gervais. Uh, Joe Gervais was actually first. He started talking to the Sipanese on Guam, a month before Gurner got there. Unfortunately, Gervais would come up with that. She's alive and well and living in New Jersey. He's the sponsor of that theory. But early on, he did a lot of real in-situ research in the area, and then Gurner did as well. So if you take the earliest information, you see how uh, some things uh, do fall in place. Right away in the beginning is that this woman pilot is very thin, Uh, seems to be sick, and that she lasts only a week. Mm. And that the native detectives on Saipan are all around the case, not the Japanese. As journalists returned, the whole idea of Amelia Earhart being executed by the Japanese and being the first victim of World War II becomes popular. The information is certainly getting to Saipan as well, and the stories become more elaborate. The Japanese are all over the incident, she lasts for months. The same people who told Gervais early on a week are then telling Fred Gurner a year later that oh, this, this, she lasted for years, for, you know, for months at any rate. And then got, didn't die, was taken off to Japan somewhere. And yeah. uh, it, it becomes quite unbelievable. Right. But The, earliest the legend was born
0: at that point, right.
1: Yeah, right. but the earliest indications are that she did get to... The Marshall Islands, and then from there, apparently, she was taken to Saipan, where probably she did die, and they didn't know what to do because now it was a couple of months later.
0: Fascinating stuff. Then came the dawn. It's uh, the latest out by uh, our guest today, Ian Quasar. Ian, thank you for coming on. I, I just there's so many questions that I'm sure everyone is going to have after after hearing this. Uh, they can follow you there at your website, which will be quick linked into the show story. They can buy your books, and uh, I'm just curious: do you do you give lectures?
1: No, I have no public speaking capabilities.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is it, right? <laughs> this, this is it. Yes. This is it, American, and and mystery solver, Ian Quasar. I, I I hope that people understand the debt that our country owes to you after just painstakingly researching all of this stuff and putting it in real context not pulp as you said as earlier on in the show i thank you for what you're doing Ian. it's great work
1: well thank you very much
0: and we'll talk soon Ian i Quasar. should
1: use that as an endorsement there you go
0: <laughs> well it, it is it's great work and it's uh, it's certainly history worth saving thanks for coming on
1: thank you very much
0: follow along with us at historyworthsaving.com and of course you can sign up for our newsletter if you'd like to do so where you can never miss an episode. Again, my thanks to Ian Quazar and my thanks to you. If you have a story idea, you can always send me an email right there at the website as well. So long for now, everyone.